2: Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. Great pleasure to have with me Phil Ordway and Elliot Turner for another conversation here. Let's start uh, with you, Phil. Go ahead. Thanks,
1: John. So I thought, as promised, I would deliver a little bit of an update to what we talked about last week, which, in case anybody missed that episode, it's obviously still available. You can go check it out. But I brought up the really interesting a uh, little thought experiment that Buffett did last week, where, you know, as a couple of our listeners pointed out on Twitter, the point really was just about how hard it is to predict, you know, the the enduring power of a company over many decades, right? So at the Berkshire annual meeting a couple of weeks ago, Buffett put up the 20 largest market caps, 20 largest companies listed by market cap in 1989, and then compared them to the 20 largest companies in the world by market cap in March of this year, 2021. And uh, it was pretty interesting, right? Because back in 1989, it was right at the peak of the Japanese boom. Uh, 13 of those companies, or uh, yeah, 13 of the top 20 back then were Japanese, and only six were in the US. And, you know, fast forwarding all the way to March of this year, 2021, it was all the way flipped around the other way. There were no Japanese companies, and it was, you know, entirely um, US companies, you know, where were 13. Of the companies on the list, so it was pretty interesting in that regard. But then, you know, the the obvious point, and so we talked a lot about what it would take for Apple to, um, you know, continue its reign at the top of that, and all this interesting stuff. So I won't repeat all that. But you know, the the point was made, which was a good one, which is what would the list look like if you rolled it forward a little bit, and didn't have so many Japanese companies on there right at the peak of an epic boom, because we all know that that Japanese boom petered out pretty quickly. And, and so this original thought process, I think, was spurred. I don't know if this is where Buffett found it or not. I think it was because the source that he cited in that slide was a, an article published by CNBC in 2014 commemorating the 25-year anniversary of CNBC. It was launched in 1989. And so what I thought I'd do is just go through all that. Th- that article actually publishes it at more regular intervals, which is nice for comparison's sake. So we can take out the Japanese uh, boom. Boom little bubble there and and roll it forward. So if you go forward just 10 years from 1989 to 1999, how many of those 13 Japanese companies do you guys think were still listed in the top 20? So this is only 10 years, right? 1989 to
0: 1999. Well, by 1999, one of the challenges is you enter the peak of the dot-com bubble.
1: Correct. And so there are some really
0: interesting... Companies that, and by interesting, I mean like circumstantial, interesting, non-interesting. Right. Specifically, companies that would enter in the fray there. And I'd have to guess similarly, you know, like maybe one. Yeah. So ironically, zero uh, of those. I was going to guess zero too. man. Yeah.
1: Zero of the 13 Japanese companies survived just 10 years on the list. There were still two Japanese companies, but they were actually new entrants. So it was actually NTT. And uh, Toyota were numbers seven and 14, respectively, on the list in 1999. But to your point, Elliot, you know, you had this ascendancy of mega US, mostly tech, that just completely reordered the list. So you went, you jumped all the way up to 13 US companies, which is exactly the same number as today. And we'll see, that's actually been pretty steady, other than this little blip in 1989. Ever since, it's been right around. 13, 14, 15 U.S. companies on the list. And of course, number one in in that period was Microsoft. And we'll see that that reign has continued almost unabated. GE was actually two, but then Cisco, new entrant. Walmart, new entrant, numbers three and four. ExxonMobil was steady at number five. Intel, new entrant at number six. And then you had some other American companies like Lucent jumped on the list. Uh, Citigroup jumped on the list. (laughs) America Online, actually was on the list at number 15 which is kind of humorous uh aig is actually 16 uh so it was you know it's an interesting list but
0: again hey, Phil, on. yeah. for one second i see toyota on this 1989 list here
1: oh i apologize you're right you are correct. Wow. Now, and that was that.
0: the one I was thinking of when I was right. like, one well, of them probably made it through.
1: Nope. You are a hundred percent correct. How did I miss that? Thank you for pointing that out. All
0: right. No problem. All I was like, other... I could have sworn when you said Toyota, I was like, okay, I got to pull up the list again because that was the one I was like, the banks are gone, but this one probably stayed.
1: All the other financials and industrials and yeah, they all, they all fell off the list, but you're right. Toyota did stay. I apologize. So NTT, was a newcomer, Toyota was a repeat, so I got it. it somehow. So Toyota was number nine in 1989 and it fell to number 14. and as we'll see, it actually falls off the list after this, but good catch. Thank you, Elliot. No problem. Um, but then the other interesting thing about the 1999 list is um, there are actually seven of the 13 companies that are based in the US and seven of the top 20 on this world ranking that you could consider tech right? So there was actually a a heavier tech weighting in a lot of ways in 1999 than there is today, which I think would, I don't know if that would surprise people or not. It might surprise uh, some of the newer kids on the block, as they say. The the other funny thing is about this article, as we'll see in a minute. um, So writing about the list then in 2009, kind of the interlude between 99 and 2009, right? You went from the uh, ascending tech bubble of 99 into the aftermath of the financial crisis in 2009, right That was quite a decade. And the introductory paragraph to that written by this poor guy um, was that it's a given that ExxonMobil in any year will be among the world's five biggest companies and Chevron will be in the top 20. And as we'll see, that was definitely not the case within you know a decade of writing that. But anyway, in 1999 Exxon was actually the biggest company in the world. Uh, Microsoft fell from number one to number two, but held in there really nicely. Walmart fell from number four, or actually rose from number four to number three. But the US, again, held steady at 13, and all of the top three, five of the top 10. But tech was kind of diminished a little bit. It's interesting, right, that despite the financial bust, you still had lots of financial companies on the list. HSBC was actually number four. China Construction Bank was number five. You had uh, J.P. Morgan actually jump on the list at number fourteen. GE, which actually was a financial, whether or not people wanted to admit it, did fall to number fifteen, but but held on the list. Um, so interesting. And you actually had a tech newcomer like Google join the list, but you had a lot of companies, obviously, like you know Cisco and America Online. Obviously, those guys all fell off, right? So they they didn't persist. But so the running scorecard is that. From 1989 to 2009, a good 20-year run, you had four of the originals still on the 20 on the top 20, and it was the same four that were on in 1999, right? So it was pretty pretty dramatic. And then in, from 1999 to 2009, you actually added two, so six of those 20. It's, uh, the newcomers were Microsoft and Walmart, and as we see, those are going to stick around basically throughout. Um, so pretty pretty interesting staying power. And if you roll forward to 2014, which was actually the end. Of this little experiment, because that's when the uh, the article came out when it was published. Uh, Apple had all the had jumped all the way up to number one, and the U.S. actually had fifteen companies on the list. And again, we're cherry picking data, so I can hear the obvious uh, objections to this. I mean, th- these are arbitrary points in time, but this is a lot better than looking at just 1989. You know, in some very unusual circumstances, because we're getting 1989, 2009, ni- you know, 2014, and 2021. These are some pretty good points in time. So the US actually jumped up to 15 of the top 20 in 2014, all of the top eight, nine of the top 10, but only four were really considered tech, I guess, right? Because you had Apple, Microsoft, and Google at one, three, and four, but then you had ExxonMobil at two, hanging right in there, Johnson & Johnson at five, GE at seven. Wells Fargo was actually it in the top 10. Walmart held in the top 10. And uh, Nestle, was right in there too there's a lot of interesting you know energy CPG financials still hanging in there but Japan is now completely off the list right Japan has been falling rapidly China has no representation on the list. so outside of the. US the big winners were actually Switzerland right we had Nestle Novartis and Roche all on the on the list you know three of the top 20 that's pretty incredible and and the the persistency is held about the same so from 1989 to 2014, The same four, ExxonMobil, GE, IBM, and AT&T are all still right there. From 1999 to 2014, we added those two that we added the last time. So we have six. So the four I mentioned earlier, as well as uh, Microsoft and Walmart. And from 2009 to 2014, which is only five years, it's a shorter interval, obviously, you have 16. So quite a bit of persistence in that first half decade after the financial crisis. And then if you roll it all the way to the end, which is through March of this year, 2021, we're back down to 13 US companies, but again, still pretty amazing, right? How the US is held in there at, at 13, 14, or 15, pretty much the whole time, other than this arbitrary starting point in 1989. And tech is down to only air quotes like five or six, depending on what you want to consider tech. But in, you know, just at the top there, you have Apple one, Saudi Ramco at two, but then Microsoft three, Amazon four, Alphabet five, Facebook six, you know, pretty impressive run there at the top. But going back for the for the consistent end you had nobody as we talked about last week not a single company on the 1989 list actually made it all the way through to the 2021 list uh, from 1999 to 2021 all those original stalwarts other than Microsoft and Walmart fell away right GE fell off ExxonMobil fell off IBM fell off at and t fell off they all they all went by the wayside um, and from 2009 to 2021, which captures some pretty interesting market dynamics, right? You actually did have six, right? So Apple, Microsoft, Google, JP Morgan, j and and Walmart actually stuck it out all the way through on those, uh, through that, you know, 12 plus years, which is, is pretty interesting because it covers a broad range. And and you've actually had seven companies that were on the 2014 list stick it out and, and make it all the way through to 2021. So I think it'll be really interesting to see. I mean, again, I don't know if this adds enough color uh, to change your bets from last week. So last week, John's bet was zero of these companies will still be on the list in 30 years. Elliot said five of the 20 will still be on the list in 30 years. I kind of chickened out and said one or maybe two. Uh, I'm still sticking with like one, you know, maybe take the under on one and a half or something like that. But um, it, it's just hard for me. You, you see how you get some really impressive sticky performances these companies can can almost dominate for five 10 20 years for sure but that third decade of dominance just gets really really hard i mean some companies that were one thought once thought to be you know how are you ever going to go displace these companies i mean right as recently as as 10 years ago this guy literally took it as is or actually seven years ago this author literally took it as gospel that you could never displace ExxonMobil or even chevron from the top 20 and now they're both well outside the top 20. Um, so I think if you were to look just even five to 10 years from now, I think a lot of these companies, I think this list is still pretty ripe for disruption. Um, I think you'll still see pretty good turnover. I would bet that within 10 years, you'll see at least half the list turnover, if not a little bit more. And I think in you know 25 or 30 years, you'll still see you know the vast majority of the list, if not maybe just one survivor kind of hang on. And, and, and again, I think it'll depend... Almost exclusively as to whether or not you, you break some of these companies up. I mean, I think if you look at the companies that survived from ninety nine to two thousand twenty one, it was just Walmart or just Walmart and just Microsoft. Those were the only two. And obviously they weren't. I mean, Microsoft was subject to some antitrust and and had some pieces kind of chopped off and, and faced an antitrust lawsuit there that did hinder it for a while, but it's absolutely Im- remarkable. I mean, from 1999, number one, 2009, number two, 2014, number three, 2021, number three, like pretty impressive, right? Is that going to persist another 10, 20 years? Yeah. I, I mean, I could see that. Is it going to persist another 30 years? I don't know. That That's going to be pretty tricky. And even Walmart, right? I mean, they went from number four to number three to number eight, now all the way down to number 17. You know, what What is it going to look like for them for the next 10 years? It's going to be... Think it's going to be harder than it was for the last 10 or the last 20. So I'll, I'll leave it there. What
2: do you guys think? You want to revise your bets a little bit, or does anything jump out from from this? Well, I'd say, you know, it's always nice to make 30 year bets because we can all feel like winners for a really long time. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not revising anything, you know. Um, no, but I, I, I think, um, you know, probably I, 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 I could, I could see some companies from India making the list eventually, just because of um, the size of the country. And likewise, China may have a few more entries on the list. So I think there's going to be a little bit more balance geographically over time, um, as, as some of those markets just uh, mature. Um, but other than that, I, I'm not sure I have any additional uh, insights beyond uh, what you just mentioned.
1: Yeah that did I, I did have that thought as I was compiling this list like it was pretty amazing to see you know as China made its you know big ascent over the last 10 or 20 years. I mean China Mobile was number 7 in 2009. Uh, I don't let me double check since I made the mistake with Toyota. Yeah, they're not currently on the list. Um, you know China Construction Bank was on the list in 2009. They're not currently on the list, right? I mean the only two Chinese companies on the list right now are Tencent and Alibaba and I and, and, sorry, and Kuei Mutai is on the list, so the three. None of those were on the list, you know, relatively recently. So, and if you follow what's happening in, in Chinese antitrust regulation, I mean, it's very questionable as to whether or not these giant, super powerful Chinese companies will be allowed to, you know, continue to exist in that giant format. But I agree, you know, it, it is pretty interesting to see that the U.S., you know, the, their economic dependence here has been questioned a lot and it's, you know, four or 5% of the world population and the world's gotten much more globalized. And yet, you know, that's what it really stood out to me. That it's pretty interesting that, you know, 13, 14, 15 of the top 20 have been consistently U.S. companies. So I don't, I'd like to think that'll persist. I, in some ways hope that will persist, but I do wonder you'd have to bet on some companies emerging from places like India or Southeast Asia or others. It would seem pretty likely.
0: Yeah, I feel pretty good about sticking with my five and you know, I like this idea that you guys are thinking globally of where incremental additions could come from. One that I find kind of surprising, like Johnson and Johnson popped up a few times historically on this list of 20 largest companies and you mentioned Novartis I think in the 2014. And by the way, props to Switzerland for, you know, some good representation for a fairly small country in there. Um I think healthcare is pretty underrepresented overall, and there's some interesting companies that maybe down the line could have a much more meaningful presence. Um, one of the other things I think about is, you know, Microsoft's the one who's had the most representation across time, and we tend to think of technology as this area of rapid change with the most likely uh, come up and that'll eventually fall. And we sit here today looking at a list that you know, I mean, like you mentioned, technology is not quite as represented as it was a couple of years ago, but it's still pretty big. And, you know, of the, of the 10 biggest, technology is more represented than of the 20 biggest. And, you know, I wonder in general about this question of accreting advantages to certain kinds of companies built around intellectual property, as opposed to physical plant and equipment. Um, Because I think that is, you know, I mean, banks are a little different, but they require a lot of actual capital. Uh, The companies today are really lean in capital that are up there from technology sector, um, have a lot that they could do with either acquisitions to kind of like maintain an entrench and kind of uh, ensure some degree of persistence. Uh, So, you know, I think the economy is fundamentally different, like intellectual property counts and, and matters a whole lot more. Um, and I don't know, there's the case to be made. Uh, you've seen both sides of the case. There's some people insisting that technology has these sorts of uh, compounding advantages today uh, that didn't exist in the past. And it makes me wonder like, what that means and what that looks like. So, I know I'm just asking questions, not really like offering many specific thoughts. But, you know, I think that the answers to how many companies endure in the top 30, I think, rely on having a strong opinion on whether technology's advantages compound over time or if technology is inherently, you know, think about the reasons why Buffett didn't want to invest in technology. Um, And also think about whether the label technology is even relevant in the first place because Walmart's built incredible technological capabilities and like, you know, you just see them and they manifest in different ways. So, you know, th- those are the things I wonder about as I try to think it through. And yet I still insist five seems like a pretty fair spot to set the line. You know, I feel, feel good about that.
1: Yeah. Look, I, I totally agree by the way. I think arguing about whether it company as a technology company is about as stupid as arguing about somebody being a value investor or not, right? Like if you don't try to buy value, (laughs) what are you trying to do? And if you're a company not leveraging technology, why do you exist or you won't exist for very long, right? I mean, it's just very arbitrary and stupid. I mean, it gets all the way down to a company like Tesla. Like Tesla's on the list right now. What is Tesla? Is it a car manufacturer? Yes. Is it a technology company? Yeah, sure. I mean, I don't know where you draw that line, right? I mean, that's why it gets so arbitrary and ridiculous. I mean, you know, Visa and Mastercard are financials, I guess, but I mean, in a lot of ways, you know, if they were a startup, they'd be called a fintech, right? I mean, it's it's all arbitrary and ridiculous. So I don't I don't put too much weight in that. But I will say, like, I I do find the antitrust and regulatory thing to be really interesting because it's it's funny how few of these companies actually were outright broken up. And maybe you're starting to see more of that right now in China. Maybe you're about to see more of that in the U.S., although I kind of doubt it. And so I think that'll be a pretty big threat, right? I mean, it's pretty amazing how dominant Microsoft really was on this list. And by the way, even though Microsoft was super dominant on this list, the stock price actually went you know sideways for like a decade and a half. Which shows just how gargantuan it was and how much of the future value investors were pulling forward. And they weren't really dead wrong. They were just, you know, a little bit off in the timing. So I think you're gonna see some of that too, where a lot of these companies persist and the businesses themselves are, are economically dominant and the, you know, the market values will fluctuate a little bit and take some time to catch up and that sort of thing. But I don't think they'll they'll necessarily fall away. And you're right. I mean, so J and J has been on the list. Uh, since 2009, they were number nine. Then they ran ran up all the way to number five in 2014. They're at 14 now. Uh, United Health actually has made an appearance on the list now at number 19. Uh, that does seem like a good industry to you know produce some more big winners, just because the opportunity is so gargantuan. So that that would make some sense, and I, I do think that maybe something a little more narrowly focused, um, you know, having both Visa and Mastercard on the list, as wonderful as those businesses are. Seems like it could be a tougher road in the next 10, 20, 30 years, just given all the proliferation of options that are going to exist in the payments world. So that would be my thought as to where the vulnerabilities are, and we'll we'll see about some of the others. But
2: anyway, interesting thought experiment. Terrific. Thank you so much, Phil. Let's move on to you, Elliot, for your topic of the week.
0: Great. Right. So, um, you know, we're called this week in intelligent investing, and we tend not to talk too much about what's in the headlines this week. Though I thought it was an especially timely moment to visit, like this week's topic du jour in financial markets, and specifically, what I'm getting at is inflation. Right? Um, everyone right now in my Twitter feed, and you know, you can look at Google trend searches, like regular people. Who are in attuned to markets are saying, you know, what's going on with inflation? Is this, uh, you know, something that we should be thinking about? Something that's concerning? And you know, we're recording this on uh, Thursday the 13th, but um, just yesterday the CPI number came out fairly hot, and it was a 0.8 percent jump from March to April, and the markets reacted. Uh, pretty strongly. and I think specifically what you're seeing in markets is what you know some might call a rotation from uh, growth to value uh, because in theory value is um, you know or at least the theory that's being posited out there is growth is sensitive to discount rates and therefore value is what you'd want to own. Um, value is more hard asset oriented and therefore that too you know replacement cost rises in an inflationary environment. Um, but you know, I don't think uh, the headlines and the reaction, the knee-jerk reactions, truly do justice to a topic that's really nuanced and requires a lot of thought. Um, I think effectively, the world breaks down into those who feared inflation for several decades and those who've, you know, been fairly uh, disinterested in, in viewing it as a foremost concern at the moment. And depending on which side of the line you fall on. You know i've been wanting to kind of downplay uh inflation for as far as i've been involved in financial markets so you know my my priors like let's let's put those out there uh, cuz they are what they are um i'm not all that concerned uh, but those who have been concerned are are very concerned right now because the number looks that way and i just wanted to like get a little more granular i think um you know if you look at uh under the hood of the cpi print um In year-over-year terms, like the biggest movers were stuff like car and truck rentals were up 16% year-over-year in price. Used cars and trucks were up 10%. Lodging away from home, 8%. Um, Other lodging, you know, uh, hotels and motels up 9%. Airline fares up 10%. Motor vehicle insurance, admissions to live events and museums, food away from home, all up like flirting with 10%. Um, Matt Klein had an excellent article in uh, his Barron's column kind of decipher sifting through the pieces. And what he pointed out is that one third of the jump alone could be attributable to um, the price of used cars and trucks. One third of the jump comes from all the other categories I just mentioned. And the last third is all other stuff. And collectively, the bucket of things I listed account for only 13% of the CPI basket, and the rest is the the residual. And if you look at that and strip out these kind of what you'd call the recovery and the bottleneck categories, inflation was like exactly what you'd expect it to be. It was fairly normal. And then collectively, these reopening categories are still, by and large, um, below where they were in price terms before COVID. So... know, what does that mean? There's likely to be continued recovery uh, in price in these areas, and recovery in price manifests itself as what looks like very high CPI now. And then beyond that, I think there's a list of several uh, transitory forces that are working on the uh, economy right now. And they are, I think, personally, directly attributable to both the lockdowns and the reopenings and how it's played out. So specifically the bottlenecks I'm thinking about are one, we have this semiconductor chip shortage. We're hearing a lot about that in the headlines. Uh, It is a reality. And I think, you know, personally, I think part of that had to do with the fact that plants shut down um, when the economy shut down. Right. And uh, you had to adopt new socially distant working environments. And, a lot of the manufacturing happens overseas, and you had all different kinds of problems, and I'll get to that in number three um, but there are you know serious challenges that happened because of the fact that while plants shut down, economic demand recovered pretty quickly in our economy. We got back you know we're not exactly a trend, but we're getting pretty close to it. so the resumption in demand happened a lot quicker than the resumption in supply and you had to make up for a period in which you weren't producing anything to kind of get there more fully. Then you have specific kinds of commodities. And the one we're hearing most about is lumber, but it's also happening with copper. And it's very similar to the semiconductor situation where like, you know, with lumber in particular, the problem is not that we don't have enough wood, that there's not enough trees or anything of that sort. It's that mills had to shut down for a while, things got backed up and then suddenly, You know, I think similar to semiconductors, one force I didn't mention is that for uh, part of the response of people in aggregate and in our economy to COVID was they changed what they wanted to buy. Um, So house demand became very popular, right? House demand versus inventories is uh, as as high a ratio as it's been, and that results in you know, either doing more work on your existing house to make it more livable for what you need, or building new houses. And suddenly you get this surge in demand for lumber meeting uh, tight conditions, a bottleneck in supply, and woo, prices do crazy things. And then the last force that, that I'd identify as a bottleneck are the ports themselves. And this is also directly attributable to what happened between China closing first, Uh, having stopped manufacturing while our economy was fairly normal, then resumptions in China as our economy shut down, then a change in composition of what was demanded, what people were buying. Um, And you have a situation, I spoke with a CEO uh, just a week ago who talked about having some inventory, key inventory sitting on ships outside the LA ports for a month waiting for it to get there, right? There are over 40 super tankers waiting at any given time uh, with supplies to get into ports. And this backlog is as long as it's been, even though like March, I think, was as busy a month for port traffic as there's ever been on the West Coast. And so, you know, you add all these forces and I think effectively what I'm getting at um, is that what we're viewing as inflation today is a combination of really low base rates from a year ago when the economy was very much in the depths of the COVID uh, lockdown challenges and some uh, transitory forces that have to do with the, the cadence of closures and reopening. Now, there are broader questions around inflation that center around the extent of fiscal and monetary support. Um, and so, you know, there are a lot of people concerned about that. And, you know, what I think and my perspective from here that I, you know, reserve the right to change is um, it would be way too soon for that to manifest anyway. Like it's, it's not that stuff that's working on the economy. It's been quite helpful in making sure we don't have a more severe recession. But by and large, uh, you know, these forces are not at work yet. And were that to manifest, it would be several years down the line. And what we're seeing right now more is a normalization. And further, I think, you know, coming out of the great financial crisis, we kind of stopped a little short of uh, getting ourselves from the brink back to normalcy and left ourselves in this kind of waddling uh, subtrend growth trajectory. And, you know, before we ever get to inflation as a concern, we have to get back to pre-GFC trend growth. And we're still a ways away. And uh, beyond that, we have the tools to kind of put a lid on inflation if and when it truly manifests. Now, the one looming question that I started this topic with is this notion that it uh, in markets manifests as a push away from growth into value. And by a large, you know, I think that's lacking certain uh, nuance because when you think about growth companies, um, many of them are software technology oriented businesses, really high fixed costs relative to variable costs and great degree of operating leverage. So if they have any pricing power, that should you know in, in to a great degree result in increased bottom line. So if people were being scrutinous, that definitely should come into play. The counterpoint is, hey, discount rates, you know everyone values growth based on really low discount rates and my pushback to that pushback would be, you know, if you're wrong in your thesis because of discount rates, then your analysis was fundamentally wrong to begin with. And so therefore, you know, it's kind of the wrong question to be asking. I think it's just a pretty healthy kind of overall rotation in markets from, you know, some things that worked a little too well last year and into the very beginning of this year, um, and some things that had the right to catch up once it became much clearer. Our economy not only uh, would get back to normal, but it would happen uh, sooner rather than later. And so those are some of my thoughts. I'm curious what you you gentlemen think about inflation right here, right now. How do you think about it as a risk? How do you synthesize that and pursue uh, investing with uh, you know that thought at large and uh, take it from there? Yeah, it's interesting. It is
1: the topic de jour. And it's funny that it's becoming the topic de jour because in some ways it's been toward the forefront of the discussion, I guess, for a long time, right? I mean, there've been, uh, uh, you know, fiscal spending scolds for for a long time and and they've been wrong. And look, it, to to lay out our priors on it, I mean, I, I've been somewhat concerned, I guess would be the way to put it, about inflation really ever since we spent all the money in the financial crisis to, to combat that problem. I think it was pretty jarring for those of us that looked at the you know, the Fed's balance sheet and what they were doing and then seeing just massive amounts of assets being taken directly on balance sheet back when that was something that just wasn't done, that just simply was not in the playbook back then. And, uh, you know, there was no such thing as quantitative easing, right? So it's just a paradigm shift that I think a lot of people still struggle to comprehend. And I'm one of them. And it's certainly hard to look forward and predict the future as to how this all plays out. Um, You know, I think, we talked about it a lot at the Berkshire annual meeting a couple of weeks ago right it's a movie that's never been played before we don't know what the script says at the end of it it's probably the single most interesting macroeconomic experiment of all time or certainly since the great depression that's for sure so um you know my priors are to be concerned about it but despite how concerned i've been at various points and and now i guess would be one of them i certainly haven't taken strong action based on that concern other than, I would say it just makes absolutely no sense to me to own any material amounts of bonds. Um, you know, I, I certainly personally and in my fund don't own any bonds uh, right now. I've owned some at various points over the last you know five to eight years or thereabouts, but they've all been issues where I thought something was dislocated on a fundamental basis, where I thought there was a very attractive, absolute return, right? I'm certainly not playing a relative game in bonds. And in, a, in an absolute sense, I think it's just almost impossible to find decent value in bonds as an asset class, uh, particularly when you get into things like treasuries and munis, most sovereign issues. It's just, you know, it, that to me is a total no-brainer. So that's about the only action that I'd be willing to commit to on the basis of being fearful of inflation. But that said, it's a very real risk. I mean, there's a significant chance that we were to look, you know, Now, back 10 years from now and say, you know, coming out of the pandemic, asset prices were relatively high. Inflation was really ramping up. And for the next five to 10 years, that combination of, you know, kind of slow recovery of growth levels needed to outrun inflation kept a lid on asset prices, right? I mean, that's a very real scenario. I don't know what kind of odds I'd put on that, but, you know, certainly in the neighborhood of one Three, one and four, if not, you know, one and two. I mean, I think there's a real chance of that happening. So that that is a risk, but what does that mean practically? I mean, I still go looking for businesses that have real pricing power and that can protect themselves from that sort of environment. So, you know, as a practical issue and in, in terms of putting a, a tactic in the playbook, it doesn't, it doesn't mean a whole lot for me. I mean, I you know, big picture, I still think the overwhelming things that are going to settle this debate. And again, I don't have a crystal ball or know exactly what's going to happen. I don't think anybody does. But you look at technology and demographics, and I think both of them would argue against runaway inflation. And then you look at fiscal policy, and that would point to potentially material inflation. I mean, Stan Druckenmiller, I mean, Lord knows he's better at this than just about anybody. And you know, he, he put it in terms that I thought were pretty interesting the other day when he was interviewed. He said, if you were to look at the output gap, that's you know taking place. pertaining to the U.S. Uh, the monthly output gap right now versus the monthly output gap coming out of the financial crisis, right? Or right in you know let's get say in the 50th to 75 percent of the way through the financial crisis, and God willing, we're somewhere like that today with the pandemic, if not further along. You have roughly a similar output gap today, but it's shrinking rapidly, right? The the output gap is declining. The economy is getting better. Back then, when the fiscal policies were enacted, you had—and I guess it was a little bit earlier in the financial crisis—you had a—it a, 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 was going the other direction, right? The output gap was getting wider. And then, if you look at the money that was thrown at the problem versus the money that's thrown at the problem today, it's about six times greater today. So we're being roughly six times more aggressive today. And if you look at the—you know—the big picture numbers in terms of what we're spending in, in stimulus, you know, that, that seems about right. So. You know that this is a big response. It is a big, giant, huge bet, and so that that would speak to some reason to be concerned about inflation. Again, I don't think I think CPI is a very flawed metric, as we all know. I mean, you know, what are the things that people really care about, right? They care about their businesses and their input costs. They care about healthcare. They care about transportation costs and prices at the pump. They care about healthcare. They care about education. They don't care about a number like CPI. And so, to your point, Elliot, about commodities. I mean, look, commodities have not kept up with GDP or certainly with CPI for a long time. So it seems somewhat natural that a lot of commodities, you mentioned copper and others, I mean, it seems somewhat natural that they would have a moment to catch up in an environment like this. And then you look at the underlying supply issue and things like lumber and whatnot, that does seem more transitory. I would, I would agree with that. So, um, you know, the, the big takeaway for me here is that it's fascinating. I don't know how the movie ends. I wouldn't want to be too convicted, so that I'd get real dogmatic about anything. That would seem like a big mistake. Um, other than I just don't see the need to take any risk where inflation's really at the central, you know, at the crux of the issue. That seems like a, a recipe for disaster. So I wish I had a, a stronger set of opinions than that, but uh, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. That's for sure.
2: Yeah, I don't think anyone knows. Um, I'll share my prior or bias. I, I actually. Spent a few years of my life growing up in an inflationary environment. That was in the former Yugoslavia in the mid to late eighties, where actually, um, basically, inflation turned into hyperinflation. You and you literally had like a hundred thousand percent a year inflation or something, something crazy. Um, so, you know, I, I think kind of viscerally, uh, I, I, I fear this uh, just because of that uh, one experience, and, and that definitely taints my view. Um, so I'm, I'm probably on the other side of, of this, um, probably much more concerned than, uh, than some others. And um, Buffett, a couple of weeks ago, did say that Berkshire is seeing, uh, quote, very substantial inflation he said, "We are raising prices. People are raising prices to us, and it's being accepted. And if I'm not mistaken, I I, I don't think Berkshire really has big businesses in some of those areas that were uh, driving the CPI number, like uh, used cars or, or things like this. So, um, you know, that would that would kind of speak to perhaps." Uh, Inflationally, pressures being pretty broad uh, in the economy. I think what, what really uh, drives my concern is just the fiscal and monetary irresponsibility that we're seeing. And there's really no political will, it seems, to do anything uh, about this. You know, it used to be that the Republicans were the party of uh, balancing the budget, fiscal responsibility, and so forth. But now both parties are are irresponsible, you know. The Republicans uh, are ir- irresponsible in the sense that uh, they just want tax cuts, which basically blow up the uh, the budget, and uh, Democrats want spending. <laughs> and uh, you know, it, it looks like uh, the Fed is 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 giving both of them what they want because uh, the Fed keeps. Buying up those uh, bonds that the government needs uh, to fund the deficit, and if you look at the uh, the Federal Reserve weekly trend data that's published by the Fed every week, uh, the balance sheet data, they are putting more and more government bonds uh, on the Fed balance sheet every week. So that's not going to change. For that to change, um, there would have to be uh, some sort of effort to balance the budget and. and that's clearly not uh, not happening anytime soon. Um, I'd point uh, listeners to a, a great podcast episode that Paul Singer of uh, Elliott Management, Elliott with two T's, uh, had on the Grant uh, Williams podcast, where he basically predicted what just happened, and uh, and. It was interesting what Singer then said about the debate that would ensue about whether uh, this is transitory or not. So I, th- I think that's pretty instructive to to listen to. Um, you know, there is the view that you really need growth to have inflation, but there are a lot of countries that really don't have any growth. They actually have imploding economies with with runaway inflation. Uh, like Venezuela and, and many others, uh, Weimar Germany. And there's there's just so many examples internationally, actually, if the former Yugoslavia, when it had that runaway inflation, did not have a strong economy at all. Um, so it's it's just very hard to put a lid on inflation once it it gets going, because unlike some other things where if everyone's concerned about it, everyone's worried, The problem gets kind of addressed here. Actually, the problem gets worse because um, if employees are worried about inflation, they start demanding higher wages. Uh, If consumers are worried about inflation, they're not going to keep cash around. They're going to buy goods. They're going to try to turn cash into goods, and so forth. Uh, You know, CFOs of companies they're they're going to insist on indexed contracts for pricings, which, uh, in effect in effect, can can drive kind of a spiral. So until there's a clear political will and a will from uh, the Fed to uh, become responsible fiscally, um, I'd say this is definitely a concern. But again, nobody knows. And I would very much loathe to predict anything just given how 2008 uh, played out, uh, where many of us thought inflation was was coming as well.
0: Yeah, I think you make some, both of you make some really interesting points there. Um, I should listen to the Paul Singer interview on uh, with Grant Williams. Um, you know, while Elliot with two Ts and I agree on Twitter, I think I'd take the other side on in, inflation in the sense that, you know, I don't necessarily think it's appropriate to compare uh, normal inflation with Venezuela zimbabwe I don't know if he said Zimbabwe or not, but like Venezuelan style inflation and inflation in some of the no growth economies that are mentioned, because mainly what I'd view that is a an indictment of the institutional credibility of the government itself. And so until that's at question, and I know there might be some people out there sitting here thinking like, yeah, I'd question the institutional credibility. Of the U.S. government—that's uh, a different story. I don't think that's like, by and large, the predominant view. Um, and what's dr- what what the driving force is here? Um, you know, I'd view that inflation of a very different nature than inflation in, um, you know, driven by uh, price pressures. And you know, I mean, you, you do raise some good questions. We're in an experiment. No one really knows what the end game looks like. Um, There is this uh, twofold situation where if we acknowledge a risk, we tend to have the tools and capacity to make sure that it doesn't manifest as truthfully as a risk. But there are certain degrees to which once you acknowledge inflation as a risk, it could become a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? (laughs) So which one is it and which one's at work? and to that end, I think, inevitably, it would have to be a choice by the Fed to let inflation uh, go way too hot, not uh, the other way around. Um, and I, I'd imagine their argument would be, we have a lot of tools to fight inflation. We were under our 2% target for a very long period of time. We will let it run hot and make sure such that over this entire period, they are just still 2% and not more. Um, and, um, then we'll really, you know, dig into the Volcker playbook instead of the Bernanke playbook and conquer.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. So I think that's what I was just about to say is unlike, unlike John's personal experience, I'm a little bit too young to have experienced the Volcker era and, you know, mortgage rates at 15 or more and, you know, just crazy high interest rates and coming out of a period where inflation or stagflation was a real issue. But I think John raises a really important point, is if you've experienced inflation personally, I think it scares the hell out of most people. And I think it really acts like the reverse of whatever irrational exuberance is. It kind of creates irrational pessimism or irrational reticence to act in an economic way. So I think it's a serious thing. And I think once you've experienced inflation, you're kind of like, yeah, that was not great. I don't really need to go back and ever experience that again. And and I agree that it's just harder to put that genie back in the bottle than I think most people realize. So yes, we have tools that could theoretically do it. Yes, we've done it before, but I, I feel like our, our willpower as a society, and I'm speaking mostly about the U.S. here, is just much lower than it was potentially back then. So... I think that's that's one of the big concerns I have is just you know if it if it gets to that point I don't think we're clearly there yet right but um, you know you, you look forward I mean let's just take five or ten years out I mean I, I think it's interesting that demographics doesn't get a bigger um, you know kind of role in this story because you know it's going to be increasingly hard to support big deficits and an aging population right and so to John's point you definitely do not need a runaway growth style economy to have inflation. And in a lot of ways, stagflation or a stagnant economy, shrinking economy coupled with inflation is the worst possible combination you could ever have. And you look at some of the demographic numbers. I mean, another experiment that we've never tried in the history of the world is a shrinking population. And it is basically, I mean, it's not totally impossible, but it's going to be almost um, impossible for Russia, China, a, a big chunk of Europe, uh, to, to avoid a shrinking population in absolute terms during the rest of my lifetime. And that's pretty crazy, right? I mean, this number that came out of China the other day was just mind-boggling. And again, you you assume the number's real. I, I don't know how you'd fudge this too much, but only 10 million babies were born in China last year. And that's down 15% year over year. And no doubt the pandemic played some role in that. But you know, the, the writing's on the wall that demographics are going to be an issue and you know what do older people generally do? And at least in a society like the US, they vote, right? And once you have an entitlement of any kind, I mean, it's very clear that humans of all stripes do not like having things taken away once they're given to them. So it's gonna be really, really hard to fight this and, and put the genie back in the bottle if it really escapes. And so I think that's where I, I do have some genuine concern.
0: It's kind of funny how like you take... All of that, and collectively, we're living the uh, opposite of the 1970s, where you know one of the most popular books of the entire decade was this book, The Population Bomb. And the concern was, oh my God, population's gonna grow endlessly forever. How are we ever gonna, you know, is modern Malthusianism, how are we ever gonna like, you know, fit all these people on planet Earth without uh, catastrophic uh, outcomes? And now it's like, well, what do we do now that population's no longer growing? Um, and, you know, when you started, Phil, I was thinking like, wow, this sounds a lot like, I, I think it was Phil Fisher who used this notion of like the market's collective memory, talking about the Great Depression. I could be wrong on exactly who I'm attributing this to. But like, there's a collective memory of the market. And if you speak to practitioners who were involved in the 70s or came from countries with inflation as a problem... Inflation has remained one of the foremost concerns, um, and you know, us. Uh, I I was born uh, basically when Volcker was, um, I think, moments away from from a peak in interest rates. Um, and I remember I, I hear I would hear stories about you know my parents wanted to start their life and buy a house. Oh my God, mortgage rates fifteen percent. Um, And, you know, it's very much the opposite for us. It's, it's uh, a door wide open to kind of do things that, that a prior generation didn't have. And, you know, I just think a lot of collective memories will, will shape things in a different way. And it's certainly possible, you know, our generation has been shaped by like a series of crises that are very different in nature than the crises our parents faced uh, between the, dot-com blow up 9/11, great financial crisis, and now COVID, and who knows how that manifests in terms of what policies we do and don't, I guess, uh, pass and and kind of inject into what can and cannot result in inflation. But yeah, I I, I do think you're right insofar as our bias would be to stoke inflation rather than uh, prevent it.
1: So what do we do? I mean, that's that's the big question, right? <laughs> I mean, is your if you're the benevolent dictator of the country or of the world, I mean, it, what do you do at this point for it? I mean, that's where you just start. It does start to make your brain hurt, right? Like it, it's just, there's not an obvious answer. And so in those scenarios, I mean, I'm not glass half empty by any stretch. I mean, I think the most likely way to bet is that we'll probably muddle through. We'll figure out a way to, to cope with this as it develops. And, you know, maybe we shoot ourselves in the foot a little bit along the way, but I don't think it's going to be fatal. And, um, I don't think it's going to be the end of the world, but you know, there's just, once you get into, you paint yourself
0: into this kind of a corner, there's just not an obvious answer, right? The counterfactual, I would love to have seen a way to play out would have been either a much larger stimulus in 2008, 2009, or a follow-up in 2010, 2011, but there wasn't the political will at the time. And if we could have actually got an escape velocity from the GFC or if it are is like these broader forces like demographics and the inability to kind of get good uh efficiency out of technology for productivity.
1: Yeah, and look, um, I could I could be totally wrong, right? Like maybe China will figure out a way over the next 10 or 20 years to continue raising productivity so much that economic output per capita and, and you know real economic wealth per capita goes up so much that it offsets what would have otherwise been you know kind of a really tough recipe you know a generation or two ago. I mean, it's entirely possible. It just you know like a lot of things that haven't been done before it can be a little bit difficult to imagine. It's not the way you generally want to bet as a base rate kind of thing, but I'm not dismissive of it. it could happen.
0: Yeah, and that's a little more global in nature, but the US, at least, like our demographic picture starting right now basically gets better than it had been at any point in the last 25 years, which is interesting to consider too, right? Although there are like puts and takes to that, it depends on what our immigration policy looks like. Um, You know, without that, we're still better than we have been for the last 25 years but below where we were for prior generations, if immigration is a little more open, um, then we could be something equivalent, not quite baby boomer generation uh, strong, but you know, uh, there, there are a lot of variables at work. You mean um, in terms
1: of uh, population growth overall, you're talking demographically that way?
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. And that, that is a good point, right? I mean, the US is a relatively good story in that regard, but then you know, there's there's fiscal offsets to that, right? Everything's kind of give from here, take from there. And it's, you know, the, the, for example, I mean, consumer balance sheets are actually in pretty good shape these days, shockingly, right? I mean, it's certainly not something
0: I would have guessed.
1: Generationally
0: good. And yeah, they were right? good or, before COVID and got better.
1: And got better, right? And it's not something I would have guessed before, but then there's never been a worse state, local or federal fiscal situation, right? So you basically just transferred a lot of obligations onto the collective and that's where again I would get worried is that doesn't seem like as a country Americans have ever been more willing to come together and sacrifice for the common good. <laughs> so that's not, you know, quite so encouraging. But again, I, you know, my default would be that you know, we'll push right up to the line and then figure out a way to get through it, but doesn't mean it's going to be a smooth road the whole way along.
0: Yeah, I think that's part of the give and take, right? Yeah. Well, Phil, you
2: asked what can we do about it, and I'll kind of take that as what can we as individuals do about it. I think as just consumers, uh, to me, it it feels like a great time to buy a home or real estate on a you know fixed rate thirty year mortgage. Um, I don't think Amen. you can go very wrong with that, um, and that really can pay off huge if there is inflation. Um, and then as investors, I mean, I've seen some charts um, that basically commodities are near or at an all-time low compared to the S&P. So having some exposure to commodity-based companies um, may not be such a bad idea. You know, if that really happens, then uh, you're, you're in there. And, and if it doesn't, you're still getting in very, very cheaply and hopefully you can find one or two companies that would fit into that bucket uh, that are still good companies and so forth. Um, so maybe that's that's a couple of things uh, one can do.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. No no investment advice. This isn't a personal finance podcast, but you're right. I mean, if you can afford it. it and I think you're seeing that, by the way. I think that's you, you've had sort of a, a half a generation or a mini generation wake up in the last year or so and said, wait a minute, you know, why am I still renting a one bedroom or a two bedroom in a Multi-family building when I could be owning a home somewhere, and I think you know a lot of a lot of people in that generation, you know, called late twenties, early thirties, whatever, kind of push that decision off a little later than prior generations. And I think you're seeing a big catch-up there, and it's for good economic reasons too, right? If you can, you can do it, it. It does make sense. And then the flip side of it is avoid owning duration, right? Like, why why would you want to take a lot of risk where you own? a bond with a lot of duration risk on it, such that if rates do tick up, you really get killed. I mean, that just seems like an obvious thing to do.
0: So I'd emphasize one point there. You said owning a home is for good economic reasons, but it's also good for the economy. Like there's a huge multiplier to it. And, you know, one of the ways out of it is to get growth back to trend, right? How do you shrink uh, debt burden relative to GDP? Well, you make GDP grow faster, you know, then the debt grows at, at a certain point. Um so that would be pretty nice. The it's it's funny you mentioned the 30 year uh fixed, John, because I was having this uh conversation with a friend just this week and the question was at what year in the 30 year fixed will you be paid a higher rate of interest for your checking for your savings account uh than you would be paying for your mortgage. Uh so where would you set the over or under at what year in the 30 year uh time frame? I'll ask you guys and then I'll share my answer. I would say three years. <laughs> Whoa, nice. Well, I didn't
1: follow. What's the the number of years you would need for a payback on?
0: No, no, not a payback. Just when like, think of it as the Fed benchmark rate getting above the rate you're paying on your 30 year fixed.
1: Oh, I see. Oh boy. Uh, yeah, I'd probably be in that range of a few years, like John, three or four, something like that.
0: And just to put context to this, you know, a thirty-year fix is about three percent to three and percent right now. Yeah. Um, I, I said ten. I'll tell you interestingly, in uh, twenty twelve, when I bought my house, I got three and three eighths, and I said to my wife, by year ten, I could almost guarantee we'll have a, we'll, we'll get to above. Uh, we, we'll be paid higher interest than we were paying. And sure enough, by year seven, we got there. And then all of a sudden, we're back at zero. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's hard to say if it'll stay above there, but interesting three years, guys, that's that, that's pretty soon. So, you, but that requires a shift in Fed policy. So, do you think the Fed's going to pursue this shift on their own volition? Or do you think there are going to be some market forces that kind of tip their hand there?
1: No. And I, I mean, maybe I'd go four or five, but I think just as you see, you know, kind of a turnover in the thinking. I mean, we'll see how the next year or two goes, right? That'll determine a lot of it. There's a lot of path dependency here, but yeah, it just, and look, it could be very wrong. I mean, I, I would want to make a distribution of bets, right? right? <laughs> Not just a point estimate or a, cause you know, it could be like your experience, right? I mean, we could be back to having this conversation of, you know, fed policy hugging zero or certainly well below 1%, you know, and and, and stick around that level. I mean, that's entirely possible. So I wouldn't put a Particularly low probability on that either, but
2: yeah, I think the Fed will ultimately be forced into it. But again, that's you know kind of a useless <laughs> projection <laughs> because I, I I don't know what's going to happen. Um, so we'll we'll just have to uh, wait and see. But one thing that came to mind as as we were just talking about this, Elliot, is um, if 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 we actually have this view that. Rates uh, could go higher. I think uh, you know the banking sector maybe is one to look at as well because you know they've been hurting under the zero uh, interest rate uh, environment for a long time, and maybe that's going to change.
0: It's interesting; they've performed really well. I came into 2020 with a decent amount of bank exposure, Um, and you know, I mean, that was one of the first moves I made when. I, I sold it all when the Fed went back to zero. I'm like, God, I've been fighting this fight, getting to the spot for several years. And uh, you know, here we are back again. Uh, but I think that's a really interesting thought. And it definitely yeah, seems been, to be something.
1: I've been dead wrong. I mean, it's, it's a fascinating point, John. And I would have been dead wrong a year ago when I said, you know, I think rates might be an issue. The Fed's going to continue to keep pumping liquidity into the economy. It's going to keep a lid on rates. And you're going to have a credit problem to deal with. Right. And not only have you not had a credit problem to deal with, you've had a reversal of a lot of the provisions that were taken last year, and you've had a nice uptick in the rate curve. So it's been, I was over two there for sure.
0: Right. So now you add in everything we said about the state of the consumer and households and geez, you know, there could be some rocket fuel in the demand for uh more debt going forward to get back to normal levels. If, uh, millennial generation truly buy houses and make families. It's kind of interesting.
2: Yeah, for sure. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much. Another fascinating conversation. And I hope everyone listening enjoyed it as well. Take care for now.